Wednesday afternoon outside the city of Jerusalem. A couple of days ago, a man named Jesus and his disciples entered in to the holy city. And a great controversy has begun. You are intrigued and begin to follow this man named Jesus because of the things that you have heard regarding him and his teachings. You have heard this man teach in the temple and understand him to be a man of great wisdom, knowledge regarding the law and the writings of the Torah. Much excitement and intrigue surround this man named Jesus. Some have said that this man Jesus is simply a teacher or a rabbi. Some have rumored that he has performed miracles and many marvelous things that no one could do except God were with him. Some say that he is a blasphemer, claiming to be the Son of God, a rebel, and one that violates the laws of Moses. Others have said that it is certain that this is the Messiah which has come to bring salvation and restoration to the nation of Israel. Some say he is of a certain the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Wanting to find out for yourself, you begin to approach this man. But you decide simply to follow at a distance and see who he is. Two of this man's disciples have been sent inside the city to prepare the Passover meal that will take place the next day. It's now Thursday afternoon after sundown. Now the day being Thursday at the time of the Passover, you see this man and his disciples heading toward a home where the Passover feast had been prepared in an upper room. The command to eat the Passover lamb immediately after sundown is about to be fulfilled by this man Jesus and his disciples. You see Jesus and the twelve enter into the room where the feast had been prepared the prior day by Peter and John. During the Passover meal, something else happens and one of the disciples named Judas leaves the feast and passes by you headed toward the temple as you wait in the street awaiting the next move of Jesus. The night continues on and Jesus and the eleven disciples now come down from that upper room where they had partaken of the Passover feast. There's an emotional strain upon the face of Jesus as they began to depart outside of the city. They are heading east of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley toward a place called the Mount of Olives. You are aware that this had been a favorite place of this man when he was in or around the city of Jerusalem. It was on this mount earlier in the week that he sat with his disciples and told them about the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem. The journey from the upper room in the western section of Jerusalem to this Mount of Olives took approximately 30 minutes. You begin to join yourself on their journey to Gethsemane. Jesus continues teaching as they walk together. Thomas, one of the twelve, asked Jesus how they are to know the way to where Jesus is going. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. You begin to wander within your own mind. What does this teaching mean? What are the consequences of such sayings? Is this man mad? Is he a lunatic? Could this really be the one that's prophesied of? The Messiah, the Savior? Hundreds of questions swirl in your mind as you consider these words of Jesus. He continues teaching and speaking to His disciples. He speaks of such things as a Holy Spirit that He would send to comfort them 
predictions of His own death and His ultimate resurrection over death. His speech and conversation strike you as that of a crazy man. You begin to simply walk away, but a twinge of curiosity still remains. And you question within yourself, what if He truly is all that He claims to be? You decide to stay and continue your observation as you reach the Mount of Olives or the Garden of Gethsemane as some call it. In the middle of the night, you begin to wonder, what is this man doing at this hour with his disciples in this place? You notice him giving them instruction. Sit ye here while I shall pray. After giving them these instructions, you notice Jesus and three of the disciples journey a little further into the garden. From a distance, you notice Jesus now leaves those three and continues His walk alone. He bows Himself to the earth and apparently begins to word a prayer. You notice also that His disciples who had begun praying have now fallen asleep. Jesus concludes His prayer and returns to His disciples and then again goes away and prays again. After the second prayer, Jesus comes once again to His sleeping disciples and then returns to pray for a third and final time. You can hear through the silence the words of this final prayer. Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. You see Jesus returning now to His disciples after this prayer, and you notice that His sweat appears to have mixed with blood somehow. This man must be experiencing a tremendous amount of emotional strain and stress and pressure. You begin to wonder, what is it that this man is facing or dealing with that would cause this much distress? His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's interesting that Luke the physician is the only one to mention this phenomenon. Every ruse imaginable has been used by modern scholars to explain away this description. Apparently under the mistaken impression that this just can't happen. A great deal of effort could have been saved had the doubters consulted medical literature on this phenomenon. Though very rare, hematidrosis or bloody sweat is well documented. Under great emotional stress of the kind our Lord suffered, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can break, thus mixing sweat with blood. This process might well have produced a marked weakness and possible shock in the individual. As you ponder the blood dripping as sweat from the man's forehead as he rejoins his disciples in the garden, your attention now shifts to what looks like a mob of men rushing toward the place where Jesus and his disciples are. You notice that the mob consists of religious leaders out of the city of Jerusalem, armed Roman authorities, and they are being led by the man named Judas who was one of Jesus' disciples. You're once again confused. And you ask within yourself, why is Judas escorting an armed mob to a place where Jesus had simply come to pray? Judas approaches Jesus. They have an exchange of words and Judas kisses Jesus. You hear Jesus ask who they are seeking and they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answers, I am He. When Jesus spoke these words, the men attempting to take Him captive fall away to the ground with no apparent force against them. Jesus was in control of the entire situation. 
even when he was about to be arrested. There's just something different about this man. As one of the servants of the high priest approaches to take Jesus into custody, you see one of the disciples named Peter draw out a sword and swings it at the servant's head. The man's ear is severed from his body and falls to the earth. Jesus quickly instructs his disciple Peter to put away his sword and reaches down and replaces the ear of Malchus upon his head and heals him before that crowd of witnesses. This you certainly had never seen before. You begin to think to yourself again that no man could do this. Maybe he really is who he claims to be. Maybe he is that Messiah, that Savior, the Christ, the Son of the living God. You continue to follow behind as the authorities take Jesus into custody and lead Him back within the city walls of Jerusalem. Jesus is taken bound to the house of one man named Annas. Annas was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. You can hear inside the house as Annas begins to question Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answers, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple whether the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was next brought before the Sanhedrin in Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma is inflicted. A soldier strikes Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they each passed by, spitting upon him and striking him time and time again across his face. You notice that this session and trial is a mockery. Nothing was to be accomplished at the house of Annas. Jesus refused to be a part of such a charade. Now, he had been removed and sent to stand before Caiaphas, the high priest. As you continue to closely follow Jesus through this night, which will seemingly never end, and now has turned to the early morning hours, you find yourself outside the palace. There you notice a couple of the disciples that had accompanied Jesus that night as well. One of the disciples is asked by a girl at the door if he was this man's disciple. Peter replied, I am not. A little later you notice this same disciple warming himself by the fire and again he is questioned on his relationship with Jesus. And once again Peter denies his knowledge of this man and once again continues to warm himself by the fire in the courtyard of that palace. At this time Jesus has been taken inside to be questioned once again this time by Caiaphas. Then you notice Peter by the gate and yet another girl sees his face and states that for sure she had seen him with this Jesus of Nazareth. This time, Peter not only denied the accusation, but began to curse and to swear that he had never known this man. As Peter denies Jesus for this third time, in the distance you hear the crowing of the rooster. Immediately you look upon Peter and notice that Jesus in the upper chamber 
has looked at him as well. Seemingly in deep thought and despair, Peter begins to weep bitterly as he runs out of the courtyard. Jesus seems to be facing a great trial. But what for? More questions swirl in your mind now as the early morning hours continue to pass on. Jesus is led from one place to another. You attempt to stay close and watch the events surrounding this man as closely as you can. In these early morning hours, as day is breaking, Jesus is led to the Sanhedrin council to stand trial before the highest judicial tribunal of the Jewish nation. As the council assembles and begins questioning Jesus, you overhear the exchange of their words. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, You say that I am. And they said, What need we any further? For we ourselves have heard his own mouth. Jesus seems to have just spoken blasphemous words. He deserves to be punished for this crime under their law. You wonder once again within yourself as you consider the events that you've seen unfold through the previous night and the morning of this day, is this man mad? Or could he possibly be who he claims to be, the Son of God? The questions pile up and you begin to question where you stand on this issue of Jesus. After this, Jesus is taken immediately to the palace of the Roman governor whose name was Pilate. Pilate questions the men delivering Jesus to what crimes he had committed. When not convinced by their answers, Pilate instructs the Jews to take Jesus and judge and punish Him according to their own laws. Immediately, the Jews propose another trumped-up charge against Jesus, claiming that He opposed paying taxes to Caesar, and He Himself claims to be king in Caesar's place. Pilate could not ignore these charges. He's now forced personally to deal and investigate this matter. You ask, why do these Jews hate this man so much that they're willing to lie? They're willing to make up false accusations. After a short conversation with Jesus, Pilate returns to the Jewish leaders and reveals that there is no charge against him that he can see. The Jews then put forth another accusation that Jesus has caused an uproar all over Judea and had begun that in Galilee. Pilate responds by asking if Jesus was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was Galilean, he realized that Jesus was under the jurisdiction of Herod. Jesus was taken then to stand for another trial before another authority named Herod. You follow the parade of soldiers who accompany Jesus to stand before Herod. You observe this trial before Herod with still being early morning. Herod had heard of Jesus and was anxious apparently to see Jesus perform some great miracle and provide Him with some entertainment. Herod's men dressed Jesus in a gorgeous, elegant robe and all that were there mocked Him and ridiculed Him. Finding no real fault because of Jesus' silence in all matters, Herod tires of his brief seeking of entertainment and sends Jesus back to stand before Pilate. 
Pilate once again now deals with Jesus and this problem that is in his land. And about 7.30 a.m., it's been a long night for you. And you begin to imagine the stress and the strain that Jesus must be experiencing. He must be exhausted, you think. Pilate attempts one final time to release Jesus, for he can find no fault in him. Pilate, as was custom, tells the high priests and elders that brought Jesus to him that he will release a prisoner of their choosing to them in anticipation of the Passover. He gives them the option of a known rebel and criminal named Barabbas. Or this man, Jesus. They, without hesitation, say, release Barabbas. This answer confounds your mind because you know of the heinous crimes of Barabbas, but this Jesus has done nothing wrong and has no legitimate charges against him. Suddenly, you find yourself in the midst of a great crowd that is gathered outside of Pilate's hall. Pilate appears and asks the multitude who they would that he should release unto them, Jesus or Barabbas. The crowd being stirred up by the chief priests and the elders began chanting, Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! You can't believe what you're hearing from the crowd that is gathered. Pilate then questions, What will you have me to do with Jesus? The angry crowd cries out louder, Crucify! 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 Such hatred and disdain For this innocent man. What evil has he done? They get louder and louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. They even go to the point to accept responsibility for his death. Let his blood be on us. And on our children. The sentence has been handed down. Jesus was to be executed. The method that would be utilized is that of crucifixion. You had seen many people executed by this method and the sentence is not surprising to you. Other questions arise in your mind. If this man is the Son of God, why is He allowing this? Why would God allow this? Surely He will be spared. Confusion reigns in your weary mind as you see Jesus taken from within the fortress where the physical torture would begin as it so often did with the scourging. And you realize that many criminals never make it to the cross because of the severity of the beating that they must endure. The soldier's job was to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering as he could all the way up to the point of death, and then to stop. You realize the horrible suffering that lies ahead for Jesus. And you ask, what is this all for? This man who is said to be the king of the Jews is about to face death like a common criminal. Who is this man? Preparations for the scourging were carried out when the prisoner was stripped of his clothing. His hands were tied to a post above his head. 
It is doubtful the Romans would have made any attempt to follow Jewish tradition or law in this matter, but the Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again and again across the back of Jesus. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper and deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally, spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscular tissue. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in ribbons. It is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with His own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand as a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. Flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used in the bundling of firewood, are plated into the shape of a crown. And this is pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the shoulders take the stick from his hand and strike him across his head, driving the thorns deeper and deeper and deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back, already having adhered to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds. Its removal causes excruciating pain just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage. And almost as though he were again being whipped, the wounds begin to bleed once again. After the severe beating, Jesus is led back to face Pilate for a final time. Pilate, still unable to find fault in him, attempts once again to hand him back over to the Jews on two occasions. After conversing with Jesus about the charges, Pilate did not want to sentence him to death because there was something different about this criminal. Perhaps Pilate's questions were the same as yours. Could he really be the Son of God? Could he really have authority from on high? But Pilate realized there was nothing that he could say or do to quench the mob's thirst for the blood of this man. So he turned him over to them and in so doing, sentences Jesus to death. It's now around 8 a.m. The death warrant has been prepared and signed by Pilate and Jesus beaten nearly to his death 
awaits the parade of criminals to the place where he would take his final breaths of this life. The place where the criminals were to be led was familiar to you as a place of execution. The name of the place is Golgotha, which is the place of a skull. You've now followed Jesus for about a day and a half and have seen the events unfold and all of those events have led to this place at this time and you want to know what for. You see Jesus exit the palace and you say to yourself, this man cannot take much more. The cross beam of His cross is strapped across His shredded back as He's carrying it through the crowd as the soldiers bearing the plaque with His charge engraved upon it go before Him. You notice the inscription written upon that plaque. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Two other criminals are bearing crosses as well, but their crimes are well known. The death march begins. A man of Cyrene is found. He is compelled to carry the cross of Jesus the rest of the way. A great number of people begin to follow the procession and some women are lamenting and weeping for this man. You hear faintly the words of Jesus comforting these women as He tells them, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. He stumbles and falls to the ground. The rough wood of the being gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human exhaustion has set in. This centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock, until the 650-yard journey from the fortress of Antonia to Golgotha is finally complete. The criminals are prepared for their crucifixion as you look on. This process has taken place countless times, but something about the execution of Jesus is different. It's now 9 a.m. Jerusalem is coming to life in anticipation of the most important day of their religious year. This was the day of the Passover, a day of remembrance, a day of expectation. Remembrance for the deliverance that God provided the Jews from Egypt some 1,500 years earlier. An expectation of a king and a Messiah and God that would come and restore the nation of Israel to its prominence and He would sit upon the throne of David. But outside the city here at Golgotha, a man who claimed to be that very king is being put to death. They offer him vinegar and gall to drink and he tastes and refuses to drink it. It was time to crucify Him. The two other criminals were on their crosses. One would be on the left of Jesus. One would be on His right. Surely the Son of God cannot die in this manner. As a common criminal, you say to yourself. Simon the Cyrenian is ordered to place the patibulum down on the ground and Jesus' back is quickly thrust upon that crossbeam. His shoulders are pressed into the wood. The legionnaire feels for the deep depression at the front of the wrist as he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. 
the patibulum is then lifted into place at the top of the stipes. And the titleless reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed into place. The left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the receptors in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise Himself in order to get even a short breath of life-giving oxygen. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream. And the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, He is able to push Himself upward to exhale and bring in that oxygen. And it was undoubtedly during these periods that He uttered the seven short phrases that we have recorded in the Scriptures. Jesus has been crucified. And you sit and you watch Him there. There are a lot of different reactions to the people that are gathered there that day. You begin to look at their reactions. Some are mocking Jesus. Others are ignoring Him altogether. Some are weeping and mourning over His imminent death. You notice Roman soldiers casting lots and gambling for the clothing of Jesus that He had been wearing. Your eyes are immediately turned to Jesus hanging there on the cross and you move closer and you hear His voice utter these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What could that comment mean? Forgiveness? For who? From who? What did Jesus mean by seeking forgiveness for this crowd? You're intrigued and remain there to observe what will happen next. Then you notice one of the criminals crucified with Jesus begins to have a discourse with Him. You can't make out what the criminal is saying, but... You distinctly hear the words of Jesus as He tells this man that today you will be with Me in paradise. Then you notice Jesus as He looks down from His cross where He is in pain, torment, and agony as He sees His dear friend and disciple, John, standing there with Mary. He finds the strength to utter these words. Behold thy mother. Then looking to his mother Mary, woman, 
Behold thy son. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. A sponge soaked with pasca, a cheap sour wine, which is the staple drink of the Roman legionaries, is lifted to his lips. He apparently doesn't take any of this liquid. The body of Jesus is now in extremis. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. It is now noon. Darkness has set in over all the land. Darkness in the middle of the day. Certainly not normal. You begin to wonder, is there significance to what you're observing? Jesus continues to hang there and with each breath that He takes, it is harder and harder to keep breathing. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough wood of his cross. Then another agony begins. A crushing pain deep within his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress upon the heart. 3 p.m. now. You hear Jesus cry out, Yalai, Yalai, Lama Sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You recognize this quote of the 22nd Psalm. You also reflect back to another portion of that Psalm. That I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Could Jesus be the fulfillment of this? Could what you're witnessing be the fulfillment of God's plan to save man? Why would God forsake His own Son? It's now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured legs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus then cries out again, Father, into Thy hands I commend my spirit. You feel a great pain and depression as you watch this man die before your very eyes. Surely he isn't just another common criminal. But surely the Son of God would not die in this manner. Who is this man Jesus? His mission of atonement? Nearly complete. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his back, his legs, and utters, It is finished. He bows his head and gives up the ghost. His head is hung, he stopped breathing, he's dead. All of a sudden, in the darkness, is a great earthquake. Simultaneously, you learn later that the veil in the temple had been torn in two. 
You observe that graves have been opened by that earthquake. It strikes you again that this was no ordinary crucifixion. This was no ordinary man. You see the centurion there who had been there throughout the death of this man Jesus and you hear his reaction. That truly, this was the Son of God. What has taken place here? Think of the consequences for mankind who have just killed the Son of God. To speed up the death process, one of the soldiers comes to break the legs of the criminals hanging on their crosses. When he comes to Jesus, he notices that Jesus has already died. So instead of breaking his legs, he draws out his spear, thrusting it into his side, blood and water come flowing out. Not aware of it at the time, you had just witnessed the single greatest event in the history of the world. A day that changed this world forever. Many questions still linger in your mind as to the truth about this man, Jesus. The fact remains that Jesus is dead, hanging on a cross as you look upon His body with your own eyes. Could He truly have been the prophesied King of kings and Lord of lords? How could God allow His Son to die in this manner? What kind of God would allow this? What about all the signs and spectacular things that you had observed and that you had seen over your two days with Jesus? What did this man's death accomplish? And then the real question, what does all that mean to you? The fact remains that Jesus' death was not a fairy tale. Jesus' death was not a pretty picture in a physical sense. Jesus' death was full of pain, full of suffering, and full of agony. As that whip lashed across His back and those nails were driven into His wrist and His feet and that crown of thorns was driven into His scalp, the real reason that that occurred was not because of the Jews and their laws. It wasn't because of the Roman authorities and their positions and trying to destroy a provincial king. But it was the only way God could save you. What we just witnessed and what we took part in in visualizing that death ought to mean everything to us. And every first day of the week, we gather around a table to remember that death. And I know it's July 4th weekend, and I know we've got a lot of heroes of our country that we celebrate, and and rightly so, and be indebted and grateful to them for our freedom as a country, as a member and citizen of this nation, but... I hope you remember where your true freedom lies. It lies with the Son of God. He's the one who has given you freedom from sin. By His stripes, you can be healed. And by His blood, your sins can be forgiven. That's what that story means to you.
and what that story means to me. Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God seeks to forgive man. God's plan from the very beginning was to have an eternal relationship with man. As He put Adam and Eve in the garden, His intent was to have an eternal relationship with them, a personal, intimate relationship with them. But sin complicated that. Sin messed that up. You and I have messed up that relationship that God so desperately wants to give to us. And I hope this morning that you consider your sin. That you consider the gravity of those things. You consider the responsibility that you bear for putting Jesus on that cross. And that you understand the great forgiveness that God wants to give to you for that. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The wrath of God has to be poured out upon sin. And when Jesus' body was there on the cross, God was pouring out His wrath upon sin. You know who should have been on that cross? You should have been. I should have been. Because I've sinned. And that sin has to be paid for. And the wrath of God is poured out upon that sin to destroy it. Do you bear that responsibility? In your heart you should, but be grateful to God that He was willing to have Jesus be a substitute for you. And the sacrifice of His perfect example of humanity... Of God coming and touching humanity in the form of a man, humbling Himself and leaving the glory that He had to come and walk as we walk, to understand temptation, to understand sin, to understand everything that it means to be a human being, and then to take that perfect life and put it on a cross. And He said, I do it for you. That's why that story matters to you. Because instead of you dying for your sins, God is allowing His Son to pay that debt for you. Do you love Jesus? It's easy to say those words, isn't it? It's easy to say, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Of course I do. It's easy to wear a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. The real test isn't in what you want to proclaim with your mouth. The real test is what you're going to do with your life. The decisions you're going to make. Who you're going to serve in life. Are you going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve sin? Or are you going to make yourself a slave of righteousness, placing yourself under the submission of your Lord and your Master, Jesus Christ? That's up to you. But I want to tell you this, the one who hung there on the cross that day gave us some things to do. 
And He said, if you love Me, keep My commandments. That's why this matters to us. That's why the story that we've gone through this morning is said to have been what? The old, old story. The story of Jesus. The story of the cross. And how many times have we studied and read and looked at Matthew 27 and that suffering Savior and looked at Isaiah 53 and the prophecies concerning His suffering? How many times have we been familiar with that? But we need to be reminded, don't we? That all of that suffering was for me. And I'm indebted to my Lord and my Master because of what He's purchased for me. And you and I have freedom today because of Him. Can we obey His commandments? This morning, the one who hung there on the cross gives us a simple commandment pertaining to salvation. Mark chapter 16, He told His disciples, His apostles, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. This morning, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've been baptized for the remission of your sins, guess what? Jesus is calling out to you today to go preach that gospel. To go tell the story of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, showing other people the love that God had for them in an effort that their souls might be saved. And if you're here this morning and you're not a disciple of Christ, you've never been baptized, listen to the words of Jesus. As He said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. There's going to come a day of judgment. There's going to come a day of reckoning. And those that have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ will be separated from Him for all of eternity. This morning, we hope and pray that that's not you. We hope and pray that you'll come repenting, seeking salvation from that one that we studied about this morning who gave His law. He poured Himself out upon that cross so that you could be saved from your sins. As we go through this week, we're going to look at different individuals who were there that day and witnessing those events. But this morning, it's about you... And it's about Jesus. And if there's something standing between you and your relationship with your God and your Lord, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to have that removed. And if it's in baptism removing your sins, or if it's in prayer reconciling you back to the shepherd and bishop of your souls, we want to help you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. And if something in your life needs to change... Jesus gives you a great invitation. That one who died for you, that one that sacrificed his all, says he can take away your burden. He can make you free, or he can make you free again, if you'll come to him. If you have a spiritual need, please come have a seat on the front pew as together we stand and sing.